0: This is Medicine Matters, the Springer Medicine Podcast. Hello, and welcome to Episode 1 of Medicine Matters, the brand new Springer Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Jane Godsland, Clinical Director of Springer Medicine. Today, we're going to be discussing the importance of ongoing medical education. As I'm sitting here looking at the bookshelf next to my desk, on which there's probably close to 100 medical journals, mostly from the past 10 years. There's also a 20-year-old copy of Kumar and Clark's clinical medicine textbook. And most preciously to me, there is my grandfather's copy of Grey's Anatomy, dating back to his medical training in the 1940s. I absolutely adore dipping in and out of this book, and I have done since I was a child. But when I think that that was his and his peers' primary resource for learning anatomy, I'm just I'm absolutely filled with awe. The very idea that doctors not that long ago were expected to learn nearly a thousand pages of extremely dense and detailed text for just one small aspect of their medical training. And that just seems like an impossible feat to me. I wonder what my grandfather would make of the tools we use in medical education now. Video tutorials, online interactive cases, podcasts, the list goes on. I I remember showing him my anatomy colouring book when I was a student and him lamenting at how easy they had made it for us and how spoon fed we were as undergraduates. Well, there's not that many of his generation remaining with us today, but my treasured ancient copy of Grey's Anatomy is a great reminder of how much medical education has changed this century. And so today I'm delighted to be talking with Dr. Elspeth Headley and Dr. Natalie Van Harve about their experiences in delivering quality medical education in this modern digital age. First of all, I'd like to welcome Dr. Natalie Van Harve. Natalie is a physician who has worked all over the world and has a special interest in medical education, and she's got an extensive experience working alongside medical societies on their medical education programs. So we are absolutely thrilled and honored to have you with us today, Natalie, welcome. Thank you, Jane. Can I start by asking you to introduce yourself a little more and uh, the work that you do,
1: please? Yes, of course. Um, So as uh, Jane said, I'm a a physician. I have a background in uh, internal medicine and intensive care. But uh, all through my career, even from the moment I was a resident, I uh, was interested in medical education and how to to deliver education in an interesting uh, way. Uh, Meanwhile, at the same time, I'm a scientist. So I'm interested in evidence-based education, not just randomly putting things out there. Um, So I've done that with junior doctors uh, in the more academic setting, and also with a medical association for continuing medical education programs. Great. And in your experience, what do
0: you see as the primary challenge that's facing doctors at the moment in terms of ensuring that they're able to stay abreast of the advances that they need to know about?
1: I think there's a, there are a number of challenges but um maybe a couple of them one of the most significant one is that the the doubling time of medical knowledge has gone from 10 years to 73 days between 2010 and 2020 so there's a massive increase in the amount of uh, material that people should learn in fact it's impossible to learn everything um so that's one big issue the, the other big issue, and maybe that's an unexpected one, is electronic medical records. Uh, EMR is uh, more and more common in hospitals and in office practices, and it's great. It has a lot of uh, benefits. But at the same time, we know that for every 30-minute encounter with a patient, um, a physician will spend 19 extra minutes on the computer to fill all kinds of forms through the electronic medical records. So, for example, if you want your patient to see a physiotherapist, you used to tell the nurse, you know, can you get the physiotherapist to see my patient? It doesn't work that way anymore. You need coding, you need billing. um, There is documentation, there is uh, insurance forms to fill depending on where you live. So it's quite complicated. And so uh, there is not much time left. Um, If you combine these Two issues, you are facing an enormous problem, and doctors might assume that they can rely on online resources and we know there are plenty of them to look up things as they go, but there's not even time for that now, so a strong knowledge base is very important that 's absolutely fascinating i hadn 't really appreciated
0: the you know the amount of time that those electronic medical records would take up. You kind of, you assume that the introduction of technology has made things quicker and more efficient, but you're saying it's the exact opposite. I think it's actually also really interesting that you touch on the idea that it's impossible to learn everything, because that's definitely something we're trying to do at Springer Medicine, which is almost filter that noise and be able to help doctors identify what content they, you know, what new material they can um, digest and learn, because they're not going to be able to cover everything. So, talking a bit about that learning style, how much does an individual's learning style influence the successful translation of new evidence into their practice?
1: In my opinion, and in many people's opinion, in the the literature, not much. I, I believe that associating an individual with a learning style is, in fact, detrimental, potentially harmful, because the brain is a very powerful machine. I trust brains. And, you know, people have the ability to process all kinds of stimuli and actually improve their learning by using different modalities. Um, think about, um, let's say that you're, let's say you're an, what you would call an auditory person. You love to listen to things, you know, and that's how you feel you learn best. Um, If you have a driver's license, I sure hope you didn't learn to drive on podcasts. Um, You know, think about children, babies who are learning language. Um, You wouldn't say that the baby is visual. I mean, they learn to speak because they hear other people's voices. They hear sounds and that's how they, they learn words and to put a language together. So I think it's it's actually very important to not categorize people. There, there are some affinities, but there's also time and opportunities. You know, if you go for a walk on the beach, podcast is great. Um, if you have 10, 15 minutes on public transport, then again, you could do a podcast or you could do a short interactive activity on your phone. What we're talking about, and I think is a very important concept, is metacognition, which is thinking about your thinking. You know, in today's context, awareness of metacognition is very important because you need to be able to adapt your learning to new contexts and tasks. We've already said it's impossible to learn everything that is to learn. So, a clever way of learning is to learn Things that you can then adapt to new situation, to learn, if you like, ways of processing a problem, ways of solving a problem. It's more than just the subject matter. It's very important, as I just said, to cultivate your problem-solving abilities and strategies to apply pre-existing knowledge to new situations. That's so crucial for clinicians as
0: well, for doctors in the clinic, of course. Um, Metacognition is a new term for me, so (laughs) I shall go and have a bit more of a read around that. Thanks, Natalie. Medical education has changed beyond all recognition in the past five years. I'd be really interested to hear from you about what you think the future's going to look like. So what are the emerging trends? What do you expect ongoing medical education to look like for
1: specialists in,
0: in a decade's time?
1: So I think we've established the fact that medical school cannot teach everything. And even after medical school, it's impossible for doctors to just learn everything from books and reading papers. Um, It's still going to be there. Everyone will still sit and read a paper they're interested in. But, you know, uh, I think continuing medical education needs to be done in a very clever way. Uh, one important uh, trend is micro-learning. Micro-learning, uh, what it means is very short activities that are often interactive. Of course, not everything can be learned that way. Uh, but micro-learning is actually in line with several uh, strong principles of education. I'm thinking here of you know, ways of learning that help you retain information and that also help you address problem-solving. Um and For example, uh, one of these principles is called spaced repetition. So reviewing material at systematic intervals helps with retention. If you just look at something once or twice, you know, your forgetting curve is happening pretty quickly. But if you're able to use, let's say you read a chapter in a book or you read an important paper or review paper, and then you use short activities uh several times, to review some of the points that you've looked at, then you will retain that information much better. Another very important principle in learning is uh, what is called interleaving. Interleaving is about um, alternating different uh, topics and forms of study to facilitate learning. Rather than sit three hours and study one thing, it has actually been shown that it is better to spend 20 minutes on something or even 15 minutes and then swap to something else and then go back to the first one and then swap again. Your brain is much better at processing new information that way and at retaining new information. So, you know, what I would like to see in 10 years is probably a world where medical education is supported by solid evidence-based principles there should be some forms of more traditional teaching but there should be a range of short well designed multimedia learning activities and it could be podcasts quizzes flashcards uh schemas that help you process of a, a way of uh, solving problems um so that's really what i think uh would be best in terms of uh learning new not only learning but retaining new information That's really important for us to
0: think about in terms of when we're designing these educational materials. I'm curious whether that is something that's translated into undergraduate teaching now. So are um, doctors who are qualifying, are they used to having this awareness of different ways they need to revise and assimilate information? We certainly, there was none of this when I was at university. I don't know about you.
1: Not yet, but it is starting. I've been recently asked to give a presentation about how to introduce microlearning into an undergraduate uh, medical uh, curriculum um if you look at the literature in general uh, there's even a lot of papers about metacognition and principles of education for children it doesn't matter if you're 6 or if you're 14 or if you're 25 you know the brain works the same way so those principles are good all along
0: Absolutely fascinating. And I'm going to go home and annoy my teenager now by telling her she needs to be using more micro learning in her revision. Um, So it's that's so helpful for us to think about what we need to be mindful of going forwards. But I would love to hear from you about what mistakes you think medical education providers are making at the moment. What are the pitfalls that we're falling into?
1: Well, I think that one big issue is that actually uh, tools such as social media learning are totally underutilized, um, sometimes for good reasons. For example, um, there are compliance issues depending on who you're working for. You mentioned at the beginning that I worked with medical associations, so we don't have that problem in medical associations. And you can utilize microlearning on social media quite extensively, um, what's fantastic with that media is that you reach a large number of people. We would, uh, post very quick quizzes or schemas on social media and get answers from one, over 100 countries, um, every week. Every week. Over a year, you know, we know that there were 500,000 people who looked at, uh, what we'd been doing. So it's very exciting and it's free. So, you know, somebody from any third world country will have access to that if they have access to a mobile phone, which they usually have. So that's, I think, very much underutilized. The other pitfall, I think, is falling victim to flashy online uh, educational offerings that do not optimize learning. So, you know, high-tech modules that are not in line with education theories, they have little value. It's a complete waste of time. So it's, for me, instructional design is extremely important. And if you have the chance of working with an instructional designer who has a very good knowledge of principles of education, you're in luck because you're going to be able to produce... Activities, whatever it is, that are of high value. You know, there are very important principles to respect in the design of activities. The most, some of the most, um, some of the best known are, for example, the signaling principle, where it's very important to uh, add cues and highlights, uh, whether it's on a slide or whatever it is that you're using, so that you draw the eye and people right away get what is the most important message. on this page, the coherence principle where basically you need to remove every useless words uh, because they are useless. So why are they there? So go to the main uh, idea that you want to transmit to your learners. Another one, and the last one I will mention, but there are others are the, is for example, the redundancy principle. It has been shown that by combining graphics and narration, people learn better than if you have graphics, narration, and printed text. So, those are things that uh, instructional designers should know about. And, you know, there's a reason why it's not called just designer, it's instructional designers. And they need to know, you know, they need to apply this education principle to make um, uh, activities really worthwhile. Thank you so much. This has been
0: an absolute education for me and I'm really hearing the importance of making sure that the education provided is really of a very high quality and we're not talking about quantity. Um, I, we could talk all day. There's so much more that we could talk about, I'm sure, Natalie, but it has been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you for making time. It's been incredibly enlightening. Thank you very much, Jane. Our second guest on this episode is Dr. Elspeth Headley. Els is Global Director of Springer Healthcare's Independent Medical Education Division. Thanks for making time to talk with me today, Els. Thanks, Jane. Can I ask you to start by telling us a bit about what it is you do and the work of Springer Healthcare IME, please?
2: Sure. So, here at Springer Nature, I'm Global Director of CME. So. My teams are responsible for delivering global independent medical education content across numerous therapy areas. And I think the important word there is independent. So we receive funding in the form of educational grants from pharmaceutical funders, but then those companies have no influence or say over the development of the programmes or the content or other factors such as choice of faculty or speakers. So we as the independent medical education group are ultimately responsible for that. Um, and we work really closely with leading international doctors to help us design and deliver those programmes. So we work with some of the biggest names in each therapy area um, who work as programme directors and faculty members, basically ensuring our programmes um, follow all of the latest guidelines and best practice And then in some cases, we also seek accreditation for our programmes so that doctors can gain CME points for taking part. And CME stands for Continuing Medical Education. In some countries across Europe, for example, doctors are required to gain a certain number of points across, for example, 12 months, and although they're not mandatory in every country, and certainly um, there are differences in the requirements in the different healthcare systems, I think CME accreditation really does provide a stamp of independence and quality uh, to our content. And so doctors know it will be unbiased education and free from influence from pharmaceutical company. And At the end of the day, we know that trusted scientific and educational content is really important to our audiences. And that's why they come to well-respected names such as Springer Nature. It's really incredible work that you do. And as you say,
0: across such a broad spectrum and really well reputed. And in fact, I believe it's award-winning work.
2: Yeah, that's right, Jane. So last year in 2022, we actually won um, a Communique Industry Award for excellence in professional um, education programs for one of our programs in FOP, which is is a rare disease. So we were really delighted and very, very proud actually to win that award. Oh, that's
0: wonderful. Congratulations to all of you.
2: So, I mean, the
0: model that we've just been talking about of ongoing learning and accreditation for qualified doctors has been around for a really long time. It's ultimately been very effective at keeping doctors informed of the developments in their practice. And of course, making sure that clinical practice didn't become out of date. But the last five years, well, actually, you might have a different time frame, but let's say the last five years in particular has seen a really rapid change in how that information is delivered. So Elsa, begin be keen to know what you think is the most exciting development in medical education recently.
2: Oh, well, you're right. So much has changed in the past few years. And of course, it was really accelerated by the global pandemic. I think the shift to digital content was was well underway already, but it was really fast-tracked by the pandemic. And we all had to move very quickly from delivering face-to-face meetings and symposia at international congresses, for example, to online webinars and purely virtual meetings. And this became the normal for quite a while. Um, Maybe now we're seeing a slight rebalance between face-to-face and virtual meetings. Um, But equally, we've also seen how quickly virtual fatigue can kick in. And so the challenge for us was to constantly involve and innovate in the digital space, Um, And I think a big trend over the past few years and certainly in the years to come will be the move to shorter bite-sized pieces of education or or micro-learning, as we call it. Um, And, you know, this isn't a reflection of the inability of doctors to suddenly uh, concentrate for longer, but it really is reflecting the time pressures uh, on their schedules these days. And I think the image of a doctor having a spare hour at the end of their shift to sit down and do education is is not realistic anymore. So our challenge in the next few years is to really create robust and meaningful education, but in shorter formats. And that actually can be quite tough because if you think about delivering a program on, say, the range of treatments in diabetes, which is a huge therapy area, and you're trying to do that all in a 10-minute podcast, then that's extremely difficult. So we've had to think of ways to innovate innovate and in that case for example you might produce a whole series of podcasts that when taken together cover the full range of treatments and provides a really sort of robust educational coverage But in each podcast, you know, it's shorter. You can break it down into individual topics where you can focus on one themes, maybe a patient profile or a certain part of the treatment journey, just looking at first line treatment. Um, And it allows doctors to focus in on what they're interested to learn about rather than having to go and find that in a a much longer programme. So we're definitely seeing the trend to shorter pieces of education. And potentially, we're also seeing a recognition in the industry for the importance of including the patient voice in educational content for doctors. And I personally think think this is a really positive step forward. And we've recently produced several programs where we've had a patient or a patient advocate as part of our faculty, and they've had a real say in the design and development of the content. And in almost every case, this has proved to be extremely valuable input. Um, And going back to that programme we mentioned earlier, we won the award for, um, we produced a series of patient podcasts entitled Living with FOP. And this really emphasised to doctors what it was like to be a patient living with the condition and the impact that it has on their quality of life. Um, In each podcast, we asked the patient what they would like doctors to know. And their answer was a a really powerful piece of education. So including the patients, definitely we'll see that more and more. And I think that's a very positive way to go. Mm, I totally agree. I think it's incredibly positive
0: and also so good for clinicians in their practice because it's actually, you know, we know it's coming from both sides. The patients want to be heard, but the clinicians want to know as well because they really want to be using that information in order to tailor their care. So yeah, I think it's incredibly positive. And the doctor's elves that we're talking about now, they're really different in lots of ways to how, um, well, to those, you know, that perhaps we went to medical school or university with 10, 20 years ago. Many of the current specialists have been through medical school during the digital age.
2: So how are learners now different to those from a couple of decades ago? Well, we did some research a little while ago on our audiences, and we found that between 70 and 80% of doctors were now accessing our programs on mobile phones rather than on desktops or laptops. And in some cases, the number was even higher than 80%. And I think this really made us sit up and rethink how we were designing our programs. We've shifted very rapidly um, to a mobile first mindset um and instead of building a lovely web page and then at the end just checking that it works well on mobile too which you know we have to be honest is how perhaps we were working a few years ago now a lot of our content is primarily designed for mobiles and building in functionality that makes that user experience really engaging and user friendly so that's been a positive change for us that came about really because we listened to our audiences and what they wanted and maybe another upside to the swing to virtual and digital education is also that it's led to the democratisation of education. Maybe in the past, doctors in certain parts of the world or at certain times of their career were less likely to get funding to travel to international conferences or have programs designed with uh, their needs in mind. But I think now with programs being virtual and accessible from anywhere in the world, this really opens up the possibility for doctors, wherever they are, to engage in that education and hear from leading international experts. And certainly for our independent programs, we see our audiences coming from from all over the world and those that register and take part really represent doctors from all over the world. So I really see that as a positive development too.
0: I think something else that we're learning, given this democratisation that you mentioned, is that this one-size-fits-all approach isn't good enough anymore. Would you say that these modern medical education methods are more able to reach a diverse medical workforce? Are we leaving anyone behind?
2: well it's a it's a huge challenge to make sure our education is accessible and meeting the needs for everyone um, We know, for example that doctors just like everyone else have def- different learning preferences some are visual learners, some prefer to just read and listen. Some want a more hands-on, have-a-go style approach. Um, So we do take this into account when we are developing our programs, and we do try to come up with a blended learning approach where we have different types of formats for those who want to learn in in lots of different ways. But we know that on top of that, accessibility is a key issue. I think the industry as a whole has to improve accessibility of content to doctors who, for example, are sight-impaired deaf, neurodiverse, the list goes on and on. And I think we are making good progress. But you're right, this is certainly in an area where we can and should improve.
0: Absolutely. It's so important that we keep that in our sights as the reason why we're really doing this. And so considering we are now operating in this vastly changed landscape, I wonder what you would say the pitfalls are. So the pitfalls that us as medical education providers usually typically
2: fall into? I think the obvious answer here is if we fail to evolve and innovate as educational providers, failing to innovate to the ways in which doctors want to access their education as well as as the formats of education itself. We've spoken a lot about the changes that have taken place over the past few years during and after the pandemic and it's just inevitable that we'll see the same kind of shift over the next five to ten years. So we need to constantly talk to our audiences to hear what they have to say. So really, we are adapting and developing the kinds of programmes that meet their future educational needs and, importantly, the types of programmes they want to engage with. And then we also have to remember the other side of the coin from our educational funders perspective. And we need to make sure we're delivering educational programmes that have meaningful outcomes so we need to be able to show what impact our programs are having you know what have doctors learned anything have they changed their behavior or clinical practice as a result of taking part and you know we need to again evolve and come up with new ways of measuring this i think this will be really important it it goes far beyond just saying how many doctors took part we need a robust quantitative um but also i think more importantly qualitative measures, measures of how doctors or reacting to what they learn and what they are doing differently. Um, And ultimately, to see whether this is having a positive effect on patient outcomes, which really is the goal of everything we do. Indeed. So I think you've really laid it out for us that we're on a
0: incredibly challenging, but very exciting journey. We've made lots of progress, but there's clearly still an awful lot for us to learn and lots of opportunities for us as well. Thank you, Elle, so much for joining me and for sharing your wisdom and your experience. I'm absolutely thrilled that we're able to travel this road together as we begin this collaboration between Springer Medicine and Springer Healthcare IME.
2: Thanks. It's been a pleasure.
0: Huge thank you to both our guests for a really thought-provoking discussion today. The opportunities in modern medical education are so exciting and whilst I will always treasure my ancient Grey's Anatomy, I think there's now no question that it is firmly relegated to history. If you enjoyed our conversations today, please do like and subscribe to the podcast, and also visit us at springermedicine.com, where you can register for updates when the full site launches later in the spring. Thank you for listening to Medicine Matters, the Springer Medicine podcast. Make sure to join us next time. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals, for their ongoing medical education and entertainment. It should not replace the professional advice of a doctor or pharmacist and may not be used as a basis for diagnosis or any change to the prescribed treatment of disease. The views expressed by our moderators and guests are their opinions and do not represent the position of any third parties. The information given in the podcast is subject to change as the scientific field and clinical advances progress.